0: Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Pasoor. I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in Harley Street in London, the United Kingdom, and I'm delighted to be joined now by Paul Davies, who's written a wonderful book, the title of which is The Demon in the Machine, How Hidden Webs of Information Are Solving the Mystery of Life. Um, Now, Paul Davies is a theoretical physicist, cosmologist, astrobiologist, broadcaster, and best-selling author of more than 20 books. A winner of the prestigious Templeton Prize, he is Regents Professor of Physics and Director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University. So, Paul, thank you very much for this wonderful book. And um, basically, it begins with an idea that you, you kind of say that you're many things, but you are Fundamentally, maybe a physicist, and this book is about biology and um, raises the question that whether the mystery of biology requires a completely new kind of physics, maybe. Um, so, when a physicist is thinking about biology, why is that different to a biologist thinking about biology?
1: First, I should say that when I look at life, it seems like magic, and many of my physics colleagues would agree. Life does things that are just so amazing so perplexing uh, that it's easy to believe there's something magical going on. Now, I'm a scientist, so of course I don't believe in real magic, Uh, so the question is, is there something missing? Uh, If you look at the level of atoms in a living organism, we understand atoms very well, atoms and molecules. The physics of those is uh, perfectly well understood. Uh, When you get to the level of a cell, It seems like magic and so somewhere between atom and cell, the magic comes in and the question is, uh, what is that magic? Now to answer your question, when a physicist thinks about living organisms, uh, we we tend to dwell really on the microscopic details, the uh, concepts like force and energy and reaction rates. And then if you look at matter in bulk, it tends to be the sort of thermodynamic language, things like heat flow and free energy. Uh, These are the sorts of concepts very, very different from the way a biologist looks at life.
0: And it was interesting and fascinating, there are many fascinating things about your book, that actually biology is a mystery to physicists, that if you just take the basic principles of physics, biology shouldn't happen. That central mystery Get skipped in a lot of teaching at university. And I thought that was a fascinating starting point. That just as we, just purely in terms of what we know of physics, um, biology is a mystery. It shouldn't really happen just according to the laws of phys- physics as we understand it. And that is something that isn't properly explored, it seems to me, because most people who are studying biology or studying medicine assume reductionism must mean that it's a s- simply straightforward linear direction from atoms, molecules to cells. The fact there's a disjunction and something mysterious is occurring um, isn't properly explained. Could you say something about that?
1: You're quite right that reductionism uh, pervades science. It's, of course, an immensely successful uh, procedure. Uh, You try to understand something by breaking it into parts and understanding the parts. Uh, It's sometimes called uh, nothing buttery, and it's a bit of a fallacy that everything in the world can be explained by reducing it to its fundamental components. You learn a lot, and in particular in biology, uh, the past uh, 50, 60, 70 years have benefited enormously from the rise of molecular biology, which basically says that we can understand organisms by zeroing in on their genes or right down at the level of, uh, of base pairs Uh, And this type of language is used all the time. And I think there was a a great expectation with the sequencing of the human uh, genome that uh, if you understood all of the little building blocks in enough detail, if you could catalogue them, that somehow uh, we would understand human diseases and human behaviour. And, of course, it's very, very far from the truth. Uh, The point is... The building blocks, of course, are essential, and if a building block goes wrong, it can lead uh, to problems. But to understand life in all its complexity, you have to build up layer upon layer upon layer. And the concepts that we use uh, with those higher layers uh, really need updating because, as I mentioned in my earlier remark, uh, talking about heat flow and free energy and so on, is fine. You have to look at the thermodynamics of, of living things. That's part of trying to understand life. But it's it's clear that uh, living organisms do things which just are not captured in that type of um, that type of language. And the essential thing, which was identified a long time ago, the the key element uh, in what makes life tick is the concept of information. And I need to. Just explain a little bit about what I mean by that. Uh, In daily life, uh, we use information informally all the time. You know, what is the information in a bus timetable or a set of exam results or something like that? But information in physics has a, a very definite, precise definition. And the reason information is important is that when you go to a biology department in a university and ask the question, What is life? you don't get an account based on things like forces and reaction rates and uh, entropy and free energy and so on. Uh, Biologists talk in terms of things like uh, instructions and translation and signals and these days increasingly gene editing. In other words, it's all in the language of information. So uh, to put it in a nutshell, physicists think about life as stuff and... Biologists think about it as uh, information. And so it's joining these two worlds together that is the great challenge. Uh, And simply saying that a rock bottom life is just a collection of molecules thrown together uh, really doesn't explain why living organisms uh, do such amazing and special things compared to other complex systems which are not living and don't do those things. And if you want to really... Uh, f- focus on what it is that living organisms do, that say the great red spot of Jupiter. It's that living organisms garner information about their environment, they process it internally, and then they implement a strategy based upon what they've learned. So there's a complex chain of information coming in, being processed, and going out again. And it's that informational story joining that with the physics that has proved such a challenge. And that was the, the challenge that uh, I took took up with this book. And the book, I should say, is based upon several years of research in which my colleagues at Arizona State University have played a very large part.
0: So we go back to the planet Earth um, sits as an inanimate um, place for many millions of years and then life appears once life appears and starts going, evolution, as we understand it, seems to explain why you get increasingly complicated things within life, like eyeballs and, and brains. But it's the step from inanimate, an inanimate world to an animate world that becomes clear from your book that actually is an enormous step that we really don't really understand how that happened. And that was a, a, a big step that at the moment remains mysterious.
1: It's interesting that Darwin gave us this marvelous theory that explains how life on Earth has evolved over billions of years from microbes to the complexity and diversity of the biosphere we see today. But he pointedly left out of account how life got started in the first place. Uh, He he wrote in a letter to a friend, one might as well think about the origin of matter. Uh, In other words, uh, he regarded his theory of evolution as referring to life once it had got started, but couldn't help with that first enormous step of going from non-life to life. Uh, And nevertheless, he did come up with an idea a little bit later in which he talks about a warm little pond in which chemicals might accumulate over time and with the action of sunlight providing energy, uh, the complexity of those chemicals might grow and grow until eventually something might crawl out of the pond. Uh, That gave rise to the whole notion of a sort of chemical soup uh, and complex chemistry that would somehow cook up life uh, if you waited uh, long enough. And that idea of of life, uh, of chemical self-assembly leading to life, received a boost in the 1950s uh, from a famous experiment by uh, Stanley Miller, in which he put... Uh, gases thought to have been present on the early earth in a flask with some water and spark electricity through for a better week and got a sludge in the bottom containing amino acids. Now they're the building blocks of proteins. And everybody thought, oh, good. Uh, in one week you get uh, uh, amino acids, uh, run this for a 1,000 years, and maybe you you make life. And I think those hopes have largely faded. It's, it's pretty clear that uh, there are ways of making those fundamental building blocks, but we're back to this whole reductionism thing. Uh, it's a little bit like saying, uh, well, uh, we don't know how London came to exist. Imagine that you were some sort of alien uh, coming at it. You never seen it before. It seems immensely you know, complex. Uh, don't know quite how it happened, um, but there's an awful lot of bricks in these buildings and uh, let's figure out, you know, how do you make a brick? Um, is it possible that a brick might form spontaneously? And after a long period of time, you might say, right, good. We know how uh, how to make a brick now. So uh, it's only a matter of more of the same, and we'll explain how London came to exist. Well, we all know that's ridiculous because uh, it's the way the bricks are put together. It's the uh, uh, complex organisation of the building blocks uh, that are the key. And the same thing with living organisms. It's not enough to just know how to make Amino acids or nucleotides or something. It's how they're all put together in this very uh, bizarre information processing manner. It's not even just a matter of getting complexity. It's got to be complexity that is tuned in uh, to flows of information. And that's what gives life its seemingly magical qualities.
0: And another way that you describe this quite nicely in the book is that when something dies, an animal dies, like a mouse dies or a human dies, the seconds after they have died, they are more or less just as complicated in terms of their constituents as they were when they were alive. And we still don't quite understand what has disappeared, in essence, when something dies. So one of the interesting implications of your book, and there are many fascinating implications, is if we get a full handle... On why life exists and how life transitioned from inanimate stuff to animate stuff, do you think there is, and I'm not, no, I'm asking maybe an unfair question, a sense in which we could solve the problem of death? That there's a mis- that the mystery of death is is partly linked to an understanding of the mystery of life.
1: This whole borderline between life and death uh, is a rather fascinating one. In some ways, it's a bit like a clock. If a clock stops. It's still just as complex as it was when it was ticking, but it's no longer ticking. And if you uh, take microorganisms, for example, they can be uh, cooled down to very low temperatures. And, and even some uh, multi-celled organisms, tardigrades uh, everybody's favorite. You can cool them down to liquid helium temperatures and they basically stop ticking and then you warm them up again and away they go. And so uh, uh, the same is true with microbes, you can cool them down and store them and uh, warm them up again and they still seem to work. And uh, doing this with human beings uh, is far more problematic. Uh, The difficulty, I think, uh, is not so much with marking the exact moment of death, because I think there isn't such a thing generally. It's whether there's irreversible damage uh, and one simpler context that i thought about over the years is can microorganisms survive uh, journeys between planets? And let me explain that from time to time. Earth gets hit by a comet or an asteroid with enough force to splatter rocks around the solar system. And some of these rocks go to Mars and some incidentally go to Venus, which is uh, everybody's favourite uh, at the moment, uh, as a possible abode for life in the clouds of Venus. So life... Uh, uh, I think, can get around inside, cocooned inside rocks. But in space, the radiation is very high. And the question is, at what point is the radiation damage on a microorganism sufficient that even if they're in a dormant state, when they get to the other end, they no longer start ticking. It's just gone beyond the point where uh, the the self-repair can work. And what happens with with aging, uh, say human beings, um, is, is that various systems degenerate at the molecular level and above, uh, accumulation of damage, and it just gets to the point where uh, the whole system is really unsustainable. And so I don't think it's a matter that if we figure out what is is life, we we can we can do our best to ameliorate the damage, but try to get immortality. I don't think. Uh, is a realistic prospect for reasons of, of basic physics again and uh, just just this sort of degeneration and uh, and decay, so I'm sorry, I can't hold out much hope for immortality.
0: One of your arguments is if once you get physics going on an inanimate planet, it is inevitable over a long enough period of time that life must happen, then there should be life elsewhere. But if it is possible that life is not inevitable once you have physics, it may well be the case. I thought this was a very startling idea from your book that we are utterly unique in the universe. I thought it was amazing that that was a possibility when one starts thinking of what in essence life is. Could you say something about that?
1: Yes, first let me discount uh, what I just said, because it's possible that life can spread around a bit in the the mechanism where um, uh, Earth might uh, spread its life in rocks. But leaving that aside, because it's not going to go very far, uh, the question is whether uh, we are alone in the universe, whether there is a second genesis out there somewhere, whether life can start from scratch on another planet, entirely independently of life on Earth. That's what we'd really like to know. And so far, we haven't found any evidence for that. uh, And it remains an open question. And it's curious that during my career, the pendulum has swung uh, from when I was a student. uh, The feeling was uh, that life is so complex, so special in so many ways, that it could never have happened twice. If it's the product of just a series of chemical accidents, it would look like a a dream run of freak events uh, that would uh, lead to life on Earth. This would never happen anywhere else in the universe and uh, Francis Crick I think explained it very well he said life seems almost a miracle so many of the conditions are necessary for it to get going Uh, but now it's fashionable to suppose that the universe is teeming with life and it's very curious that very little has changed in our understanding of how non-life turns into life I mentioned earlier that Darwin wouldn't really be drawn on it uh, and since then uh, though we've made progress on the first steps, uh, the, the the building blocks, but really the gulf uh, between the simplest living thing, If you take a bacterium and sort of try and strip it down to the fundamental gene set, it's still immensely complex. Uh, cells are just immensely complex. And that gulf is huge. And we don't know how it was bridged. Uh, it's hard enough to make progress in the lab with all the fancy equipment, and the intelligent designer, also known as a clever scientist, uh, trying to do it. How Mother Nature could do this blind uh, in the messy conditions of the early Earth or wherever life got started uh, is, in my view, a complete mystery. And so we can't say anything about it. It's entirely likely that uh, the sequence of events which led up to life on Earth was so um, uh, improbable when cascaded together, each individual step might have been reasonably probable, but the whole sequence of steps might be so improbable. It may indeed have happened only once. That's an unfashionable view today. It was absolutely the standard view when I was a student, Um, and it's very curious uh, the confidence with which my colleagues seem to talk about the universe teeming with life, not based on any known life principle. There's nothing that we know in science that coaxes matter to life against the raw odds. Uh, In other words, Uh, until we succeed, if we ever do, of making life in the lab, we've really no idea what it takes to turn non-life into life. And it could uh, take awfully special circumstances. So it's a completely open question.
0: And another thing um, that you say in the book, which is that if the conditions on Earth, um, inanimate conditions, uh, were conducive to life being formed in some inevitable sense linked with with physics then it should have evolved more than once it's a bit odd if it just happened once on a planet where which was conducive so there's a sense of which it should have happened more than once on, on on this planet is that right could you say something about that
1: yes i'm a great fan of this uh, uh, multiple genesis events on earth uh, it's uh, quite right that If uh, one subscribes to this fashionable view that uh, life is easy to get going and is widespread in the universe, then surely it should have happened many times right here on earth. Uh, And then the next question is, well, how do we know it didn't? Has anybody actually looked? And when I got interested in this about 20 years ago, I was astonished that there was actually very little work uh, of attempting to identify whether there could have been multiple Genesis. Now, Of course, if all the other attempts at life were snuffed out and we're the only one left, uh, then it might be really hard to establish. But uh, how do we know that all life on Earth is the same life? The textbooks will tell you it is. Um, uh, The textbooks are wrong. The correct statement is all life on Earth so far investigated is the same life. Uh, There's no doubt about that. Uh, We have a tree of life and we can position everything from humans to Microbes on that tree in a very well-defined way. It's very well understood. But could there be a, another tree? Uh, might there be microorganisms, I think we notice anything big, microorganisms that are descendants of a second genesis. And maybe they're living in places beyond the reach of known life, uh, the, our sort of life, uh, maybe higher temperatures or higher UV flux or something. If their biochemistry is different, you see, they could de- exist in different um, niches here on earth uh, they the, the problem is if we're talking about microbes uh, if you you go and discuss this with microbiologists what techniques do they use they go out uh, around the world and they collect samples from all sorts of places they like to go to uh, places with extreme conditions uh, extremely hot or cold or acidic or something and look at the exotic microbes that live in those places and you try to culture them Uh, Now, the techniques that are used are adapted to life as we know it. And if you go out and look for uh, A, you will find A, you won't find B uh, if your techniques are customised to that. So, uh, to find this uh, what has become known as the shadow biosphere, if it exists, if there are uh, organisms from a different genesis, uh, would require a very different approach. Not many people are doing this. One or two people have taken up the challenge. But by and large, the assumption is that no, there's just one form of life, and we are it. Um, but you see, it, it's far cheaper to find a second form of life right here on Earth than it is to go to Mars or Enceladus or Venus or wherever is your favourite place where you think there might have been a second genesis. We find it's happened twice here on Earth. You can be pretty sure the universe is teeming with life. So just one micro, one microorganism that is life, but not as we know it, right under our noses here on Earth, would settle the matter. It would have cosmic implications.
0: So it turns out that life only evolved once on this particular planet, which has conditions that seem to be so conducive for the evolution of life. It only happened once and not more than once. From your book, my sense is that it has radical implications for this idea that life is teeming across the universe because it suggests it probably isn't.
1: Yes. Uh, the Now, I should say that it is possible uh, that life is easy to get going, but still only happen once on Earth. And that's if when life gets going, it spreads so quickly and changes the physical conditions so rapidly that it precludes the experiment being done a second time. And, and a lot of scientists will say that. Uh, I. It's easy to believe the opposite as well. Uh, for example, we know that the Earth was being bombarded by very large objects, uh, comets and asteroids uh, up until about 3.8 billion years ago and that these could have had a sterilizing effect on the planet. Uh, And so uh, it could have been a a sort of stop-go story uh, for uh, some hundreds of millions of years with life getting going and then being wiped out. Uh, So if it is easy to make, we can uh, imagine that there might have been a series of uh, these uh, creation events Uh, but the point about this is that when uh, if earth receives a sterilizing impact the material flung into space uh, would take life with it and some of that material might come back later Uh, and so we can imagine a sequence of events in which life gets started life one if you like gets started wham uh, the earth gets sterilized by an impact but that material is sloshing all around the solar system. And then a few million years later, uh, the conditions settle down, life two gets going, uh, and then life one comes back. And so we've got two forms of life on Earth. And that could go on and on, many, many forms of life. So you can have scenarios either way. Uh, But um, for my money, if we could be absolutely sure that life started on Earth only once, even though it had opportunities to start many times, and it didn't. Uh, that would be bad news for life elsewhere in the universe. Uh, uh, I come back to the the problem that not only does nobody know the sequence of events that led from non-life to life, but many of those uh, events or stages that we guess at really do look to be uh, very special. They would be chemical accidents, if you like, uh, of very low probability. And put all that together, it's entirely likely that it is a very, very improbable thing. Oh, people say, well, the universe is so vast, all those uh, stars out there, all those planets, uh, it's uh, huge, there's got to be life out there somewhere. People make statements like that all the time. Drives me crazy uh, because uh, when it's true, there are a lot of planets out there, uh, to 10 to the power 23, probably within uh, the scope of uh, our universe, as far as we can see. Uh, and that's a very big number but it's uh, totally dwarfed by the odds against uh, forming uh, even the most basic building blocks just by sort of shuffling molecules so it seems to me that if the universe is teeming with life and I, I might say I really hope it is uh, I'm a great fan of looking for life I'm a great fan of life being a cosmic phenomenon but um, scientists too haven't found any um, but but if it turns out... Um, Uh, it really is teeming with life, then I think that there are additional principles uh, that something like a life principle Mm -hmm. that uh, mean that it's not just a matter of uh, just probabilities of of molecular shuffling. It's very clear you you wouldn't get life just Mm -hmm. shuffling molecules at random. There's got to be a canalization. There's got to be pathways uh, that are in some way favored Uh, And maybe there are principles in physics that we have not yet elucidated uh, that can help there. And I come back to this informational story. If information is so key to uh, what it is that life is doing, uh, maybe there are laws of physics involving information that are going to just uh, slash those raw odds of chemical shuffling and uh, fast track matter to life. And if we could discover those principles and try to understand how information plays out in living matter, we may have a totally different view then of the possibility of life beyond Earth.
0: So we've got this molecule called DNA. It's in cells and it has a lot of information in it. It's got information about how to build an organism and how to build a cell. Um, One of the points you're making in the book is information is inherently structural. DNA has a particular structure, and it's that structure that um, codes the information or embodies information. But here we have a paradox, which is that the information in DNA helps build structures. Um, so, So life requires structures to be built. But there's a chicken and egg problem, which is that you need structure in order to have information. Um, information is at its heart structural, so which came first seems to be the problem. Could you explain that paradox or that problem a bit more?
1: Yes, uh, there's been a chicken and egg problem at the heart of the origin of life uh, throughout because life, as we know it, is based on a deal struck between two very different classes of molecules. We have DNA, as you mentioned, generally nucleic acids, which are the information encoding molecules. They don't do much. They sit around, uh, and uh, it's a bit like um, a hard drive in your computer. Uh, it's uh, It's got the uh, computer program. It's got to be read out. It's got the data in it. Uh, all this has to be read out. And the, the business of life is conducted by proteins, and the uh, DNA contains the instructions to make uh, the, the proteins, and proteins are made of amino acids. So we have nucleic acids on the one hand, the informational molecule, and we have amino acids that make the proteins and they're the ones who implement the program. And so I like to think of this in terms of hardware and software. DNA is a bit like the hardware and the proteins uh, which uh, implement that information is a bit like the software. We're never going to understand life if we uh, don't understand how both of these came to exist. And this is the great mystery, the chicken and egg mystery. How do you have both of these happening at once? Uh, there's one ray of hope on the horizon, it's called the RNA world, uh, we we hear all about DNA but actually RNA is in a sense the more basic uh, nucleic acid and it's uh, it also can store information but it has a sort of protein-like ability so it can do uh, the job of the chicken and the egg uh, at the same time and so some people think, well, if only we could uh, have a sort of RNA world, then maybe life could get going with just one class of molecules. Th- this is um, just a hope at this stage. Uh, it's not uh, not been demonstrated, uh, but it shows the, the, the type of thinking that goes into this. So, uh, I, you know, I think there is um, a, a fundamental unsolved problem. If I took my... Te- Earlier on, I said, life is like magic. Um, my computer is a bit like magic. Uh, I'm talking to you now uh, via uh, Zoom. Uh, I often make use of uh, Photoshop uh, or Word and PowerPoint for lectures. And these all seem like magic to me. And if I went along to a university and said, my computer is a box of magic, explain to me how it works. Uh, and went to the computer science department and they took the back off the computer and they said, well, if you look in here, uh, we've found that there's little bits of silicon and some copper and some plastic and rather sort of complex arrangements of things. And we're working on it hard. We need a bigger research grant. We think we're sort of heading in the right direction, but we've a long way to go yet uh, to understand how Photoshop and PowerPoint and so on work. Well, uh, we, we know that that's nonsensical, that you would never have a total account of the features of Photoshop by appearing into the circuitry. Uh, you have to go and talk to a software engineer. And if you have something went a bit wrong with your computer, uh, you get some sort of glitch, my PowerPoint isn't working properly. We know that you can go online, download a patch or something like that, or uh, reinstall uh, the, the system from the bottom up. All of that is software. That's all about information. Uh, and the same thing with life we're not going to explain it just by looking at the at the hardware at you know, the uh, components at uh, the physical structures we know that we have to have that whole software story as well and there's a sense in which the software floats above the hardware we know that all software is instantiated in um, hardware uh, for example in my computer if we say well we will um, upload a patch for powerpoint something like that uh, that represents uh, physical changes in the circuitry of the computer uh, but but nobody would attempt to fix a problem in powerpoint by getting into the circuits and uh, you know trying to trying to change them from the bottom up uh, it's just not the way it works so there's a whole causal story involving software and uh, w- we don't think there's any incompatibility we don't think um there's a software world and a hardware world and that they are in contradiction, they clearly fit together uh, and fit together using physics. The question when it comes to life, which is like a, a computer, but writ large, does even more amazing things, whether they fit together with known physics or whether it requires new physics. And that's what fascinates me. Do we need new physics to explain the nature of living matter? And I think somewhat cautiously, but I think the answer is yes, we do need new physics.
0: There's this very famous physicist, Schrodinger, who predicts years before Watson and Crick unravel the structure of the double helix at the at the heart of DNA. He predicts this years before with this thin little interesting little book. I think the title is What is Life? And and what's fascinating about this is Schrodinger is a very important physicist, made important contribution to quantum physics, and um, and he's kind of saying by writing this book, because it's a strange book for physicists to write, that physicists should become more interested in life because some really amazing physics is at the heart of life. And that biologists should become more interested in physics because for them to understand life, they need to understand a little bit more about physics. Could you say something about this important book and its its role in, in the story that you're telling? You're right
1: that Schrodinger, Irving Schrodinger, uh, was a giant of theoretical Physics. He was one of the architects of quantum mechanics, the most successful scientific theory ever, and almost at a stroke uh, after it was developed in the late 20s, early 30s, quantum mechanics explained the nature of matter all the way from subatomic particles right up to uh, the structure of stars, for example, but it conspicuously left out living matter in the intermediate scale, and many of those early quantum physicists uh, were fascinated by the problem of living matter. They felt that quantum mechanics is so powerful and sufficiently weird that it might explain the weird properties of living organisms. Uh, but everything got put on hold because of the uh, rise of the Nazis and World War II. Uh, but meant that scientists were scattered all over the place. Uh, many scientists from continental Europe went to uh, work in uh, Britain or the United States on the war effort, but Schrödinger, ended up in Dublin in Ireland which was of course neutral in the Second World War Uh, and there he was out of the fray so to speak and free to indulge uh, whatever he wanted and he chose to address this problem of what is life. He gave a series of lectures at Trinity College in 1943 with that title What is Life and it was published the following year uh, by Cambridge University Press so remarkable thing and in the depths of the Second World War, here is this book appearing in print that was to prove immensely influential in the post-war years. Uh, Creek and Watson acknowledge its importance. Many uh, scientists, I think, uh, made the transition from physics into molecular biology, as it became known. And uh, the, the key thing that Schrodinger did in that book was he identified the nature of the information carrying molecule. He realized that information was key to understanding how life does its stuff. And in particular, how it propagates from one generation to the next. And he realized that this information would have to be stored quantum mechanically, would have to be stable. uh, But when you think about the uh, types of molecular structures, stable molecular structures, you tend to think of, of crystals. Crystals are very stable. Uh, so it would have to be something like a crystal, but crystals are not information-rich. They're just uh, simple repeating patterns. So he coined this term an aperiodic crystal, something with the stability of a crystalline structure, but with the complexity of not being, not having any patterns in it. So it could store staggering amounts of information. And that's exactly what DNA turned out to be. So he, he didn't identify, uh, he, he didn't say it's got to be DNA, uh, but he was absolutely right in that. And he was also right in the just general thermodynamic properties that life bucks the trend of the second law of thermodynamics, which tends to make things degenerate and decay. Life seems to go the other way. It creates uh, order out of chaos rather than chaos out of order. So he he, he put his finger on these two key properties. Um, And quite tellingly, uh, he said uh, that we might need new physics to explain this. He was open about the possibility that we might find new physics prevailing in it when he was talking about living matter. Uh, But he didn't take it any further. And uh, really, the scientific community charged off in a very different direction uh, for quite some decades. So my book picks up where Schrodinger left off. It addresses this question, what is life? And also, of course, how did it begin? And how do we connect together the hardware and software aspects? And yes, I agree with Schrodinger, we do need new physics.
0: And the title of your book is The Demon in the Machine. And this comes from uh, Maxwell, uh, a famous physicist from the 19th century and a thought experiment. And I'm gonna to try to explain the thought experiment, but you must correct me if I get this wrong. Um, There's a box and there's gas in the box. And the gas consists of molecules uh, racing around. And some molecules are racing around really fast and others are racing around quite slowly. If you divide the box in two with a, a wall, but the wall has a very small hole that allows one molecule to pass through. And there's a demon guarding the hole. And the demon has information and he knows or she knows the speed at which molecules are travelling and they decide to open the hole when a fast molecule is travelling along and let it through into one side of the compartment and slow molecules go into the other compartment and over a period of time what will happen is you'll have fast molecules or a hot gas on one side of the compartment and cold molecules or cooler molecules or slower moving molecules at the other and in doing that you will be able because heat will transfer from one side to the other, you'll be able to have a machine or, or, or a device that can do work. So there's something about the notion that the demon has information and can create um, a, a work out of nothing. So there's some link there. Um, when, when you talk about the demon in the machine, there's a sense in which this demon is operating within us, and that's one of the mysteries at the heart of life. I'm not sure I've explained it, correctly, but maybe you could have a, another go to explain what's going on with Maxwell's demon?
1: Uh, Yes, you've pretty much got it right. And I should say that James Clerk Maxwell was another giant of theoretical physics. It was he who combined electricity and magnetism in a system of equations that led to the prediction of radio waves, uh, electromagnetic waves, and explained light as electromagnetic waves. So um, immensely accomplished. He also contributed uh, fundamental work to the theory of heat. And uh, heat is just molecules rushing around. The hotter it gets, the faster they move. Not all molecules move at exactly the same speed. As you said, there is a sort of distribution of speeds and uh, a a sorting device which got called a demon, a sorting device that allowed fast molecules to go one way and slow molecules to go the other way. would build up a a temperature difference and then an engineer could run uh, uh, some sort of device uh, based on their temperature gradient uh, and extract work. So this looked like a perpetual motion machine, a way of converting heat into work without uh, any cost being paid. Uh, Or another way of thinking about it is transferring heat from a cooler reservoir to a hotter reservoir. Uh, And you might think, well, doesn't my refrigerator do that all the time? And the answer is yes, it takes uh, heat from inside the cold refrigerator and puts it out into the warm kitchen, but you pay an electricity bill uh, in order to to do that. uh, so there's always a, a cost and when you 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 start up and look at the thermodynamics of this the cost is always higher than the gain and that's a, an expression of the so-called second law of thermodynamics the demon seems to go in the other direction the demon uses information about the way the molecules are moving is this fast is this slow and uh, turns that into work so it makes information seem like a source of uh, work uh, um, uh, 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 a type of fuel, and indeed it is. Now, this the extraordinary thing is that this was done in the uh, the middle of the 19th century as a thought experiment. Physicists love those. Uh, Nobody, I don't think, ever uh, supposed it would be a real experiment. But today, nanotechnology has advanced so much that real Maxwell demons can be made. And sure enough, information is a fuel. You can use it uh, to run things, just information. Uh, And it's a type of fuel. Uh, my favorite is an information powered refrigerator uh, made in um, in uh, Finland. I should say it's just a nano device so it won't help uh, in kitchens anytime soon uh, but nevertheless it establishes the principle that information is part of physics and this is what is important for me it enters into the laws of physics into the laws of thermodynamics specifically uh, as a term a bit like, a source of uh, free energy, but it's not, it's information uh, as a, a fuel and not free energy as a fuel. And that shows that information does make a difference. If you like, software has clout. Uh, and that link between physics and information is the chink in the armor that helps us understand this uh, this mystery, this schism between physics and biology. Uh, and life is full of Maxwell demons. Uh, they're, in your body now, chuntering away, doing the business of life, uh, and uh, down at the cellular level, and in your brain, and so on. It's all these Maxwell demons, the way in which the, uh, which DNA uh, gets read out and replicated, and so on. These are all little demons playing the margins of the second law of thermodynamics, operating uh, on, on the edge uh, of what is possible. And the case that should interest you, uh, which I always mention, is that in the brain, there, there are uh, Maxwell demons that open and close little holes in uh, in axons when nerve signals are, are flowing through and they let ions uh, go in and out, sodium and potassium ions, and all of this uh, works marvelously. And it's so thermodynamically efficient uh, that the uh, the human brain, which has the capacity of a megawatt supercomputer, operates on the equivalent of a dim light bulb. That shows just how astonishingly energy efficient it is. But I do want to add a postscript to this because yeah. the connection between information and entropy as represented by Maxwell's demon is certainly exploited by life. But it's clear that life uh, processes information Uh, in many, many more sophisticated ways. So it's not just a matter of, well, let's save a bit of energy, and we've explained life. Uh, Life processes information at uh, much higher levels. You need only think about the development of the embryo and the exquisite orchestration and management, information management going on there, uh, to realise that the informational story is about much more uh, than uh, heat pumps and free energy. It's uh, it's about organization and management. And, and that's where we have to move information theory beyond uh, just uh, demonics, if you like, uh, into uh, a, a new realm in which we understand uh, the contextual nature of information, how it plays out on a global scale. And that's unfinished business. That's where the new physics will be.
0: So, I want to bring in this word entropy that you mentioned there because it's another crucial part of the story. That the Maxwell demon is also playing a role in terms of order, and that has something to do with entropy. Life is incredibly ordered, whereas out in the universe in general, you don't have that level of order. Is that right? There's some link between information and entropy and the tension between the two, which is at the heart of what life is. Could you say something about that?
1: Uh, You're absolutely right, that entropy, which is a sort of measure of disorder or chaos, uh, is on the rise. If we take the universe as a whole, the entropy is just going up and up and up. And in the 19th century, it was recognized that uh, there'd be some sort of uh, ultimate heat death of the universe. Uh, We're living on borrowed time. Uh, And um, information, uh, when you define it uh, carefully, as was done by Claude Shannon, in the 1940s turns out to be the negative of entropy. In other words, uh, if you lose a bit of information, you gain a bit of entropy. When information is lost or destroyed or erased, the entropy of the system goes up. And entropy enters into the laws of thermodynamics in a a way that was worked out in the 19th century very well. Uh, But with this new uh, understanding of information and demonics, as I can put it, and nanotechnology, it's uh, very clear that we have to have information uh, in the second law of thermodynamics along with entropy uh, to balance the books properly. So the roughly speaking information is like the negative of entropy. So if life is good at accumulating and replicating information, it's going against the second law of thermodynamics. It's bucking the trend. And uh, for those people who might be listening who think, oh, well, Doesn't this mean that life is some sort of miraculous process? Uh, It's um, somehow defying this fundamental law of physics. No, 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 because uh, every time life reduces entropy uh, by um, behaviour or replication or something like that, it pays an entropic price uh, for it in the wider environment. So the entropy of the universe goes up uh, to pay for that, but living systems themselves do seem to go against that general trend of increasing chaos or entropy.
0: And um, your book is amazing because you range across so many different subjects, Uh, maths, physics, biology. Uh, The erudition is is quite astonishing. It it occurred to me that you're in a way, you, you talk about towards the end that we need a new physics, but do we need a new science? Because you're... Um, breadth of learning is 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 breathtaking across so many different fields but academic the academic world of universities forces people who have to publish or perish to increasingly specialize and as a result of this reductionism and specialism they're not across all the different fields that you clearly are across Um, and in fact within the world of science and academia there's a suspicion about people who range across disciplines and so is there a flaw at the heart of science or the way science is structured, which means that we're going to struggle to, to unravel some of these important questions like um, what is life in essence? Um, could you say something about that?
1: You're absolutely right that there is this increasing specialism. And when you look at the history of science, it's often at the edges between disciplines that the progress is made. Uh, now, universities pay lip service to Uh, to crossing these disciplines. Arizona State University, where I work, uh, does more than lip service. It really does encourage people to uh, go across these disciplines. And there's no subject better than astrobiology uh, for doing that, because that's all about astronomy and physics and biology and chemistry. Uh, And so my time as an astrobiologist really taught me uh, to think uh, across these not just subject divides, but different concepts uh, that uh, represent physics and biology are so different. And, uh, and I've learned to uh, try to reconcile those two. So I think it's really essential we do that. But you're right also that we need, um, it's not just uh, new physics, it's new science. And we really need a word for the place where physics, chemistry, information theory, computing, uh, nanotechnology, all these things come together. My publisher urged me to come up with a word. I can't think of one uh, that would represent uh, this new frontier. But any young people listening, I would say that's where the action is going to be in the next decade or two.
0: Well, Paul Davies, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. Uh, just to remind people, that the title of the book is The Demon in the Machine, How Hidden Webs of Information Are Solving the Mystery of Life. Uh, Paul Davies, thank you very much indeed.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.